Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Poetry Says. I'm Alice. Thank you so much for listening in. I've had the pleasure over the last couple of days to actually meet a few people in real life who um, have said, oh, Poetry Says, yeah, I listened to that. And it's been completely mind-blowing to meet people out in the world who know about the podcast and listen to the podcast. And I've also received a couple of really beautiful emails from people overseas saying that they enjoy it as well. So thank you guys. It's a pleasure to be making this for you. Um, although, as I always say, I try not to think too hard about the fact that anyone's listening because then I would freak out. Um, so today's episode, it is a couple of days late. But I wanted to do an episode about Ern Malley. You've either heard this story a thousand times or you've never heard it before. Um, I'm going to start from the beginning, try to give a good overview of the Ern Malley story for those who've never heard it. If you have heard it, I'm hopefully going to put in a few interesting details that you may not have heard before. So on Wednesday, it was a hundred years since Ern Malley was born. Already we hit a problem with the story. Ern Malley was never born. Ern Malley is not a real person. <laughs> Ern Malley was a made-up poet, made up by two upper-class poets, um, Australian poets, trying to expose a very young, very talented, more um, avant-garde poet. That's the basic frame of the story here and this all took place uh, in the 1940s and um, the players in the story are James Macaulay and Harold Stewart they're the two upper class poets they're um, off-duty soldiers sitting around in the Melbourne barracks one afternoon and they strike up this fantastic idea why don't we write a bunch of hoax poems and send them to that guy Max Harris that young guy down in Adelaide who's publishing all this new experimental poetry that looks like all this weird stuff coming out of the UK and America that we hate and um, we're going to show him up for what a fool he is by sending him these poems and he's going to totally fall for it he's going to publish them and we're going to draw in um, these modernist poets from the UK and the US too, they're going to celebrate these poems as well and we're going to expose the whole thing for the sham that it is because we know that none of this poetry makes any sense at all and it's just a, a huge emperor's new clothes situation. It's not the nicest story that we're telling here. It's, uh, yeah, pretty mean and... Um, Especially when you consider, I suppose, that the, the editor in question, Max Harris, he's only 22 years old. Um, there's something I think about that the most, the first interesting aspect of this story that stands out to me is Max Harris's age. So 22 years old, publishing a journal out of Adelaide. Apparently it was quite a glossy, beautiful journal, getting quite a bit of attention in literary circles. Um, is there anything more maddening than that <laughs> in the world of poetry even today? Is there anything that makes you more kind of like, ah, oh, oh, okay, well, good for them. 
Um, so that's kind of the thing that stands out to me to begin with. Although in the 1940s, maybe 22 didn't seem quite as young as it does today. Um, so that's the first aspect of it. So we've got these two upper class, um, I say upper class, but what I really mean is poets who are very traditional. They're interested in traditional forms, in meter, in the traditional ways of writing and crafting poetry. And they're very offended by the new modernist writing that's coming out. Um, And they're off-duty soldiers. They're sitting in the barracks and over the course of an afternoon, they write 17 poems by one Ern Malley. Uh, it's a strange name to begin with and throughout the poem the poems that they write they pepper these clues um, that these are not real poems they're having so much fun with it they're pulling in all these allusions to other works they're quoting other pieces of literature and and not literature um, non-fiction just pulling it all together and making these things that that do sound a lot like poetry. Um, and, and I'll read you some examples in a little bit so you can hear what they actually sound like. I think it's important to imagine that process because I think it might be something that a lot of people have gone through. There's this really delicious kind of mischievous feeling when you and a friend decide you're going to trick someone, obviously in this case, it's a very horrible trick that they're playing, but to have a co-conspirator and to be kind of impressing each other with like how, you know, your knowledge of how the trick's going to work and trying to one up each other. um, You can kind of imagine what that afternoon in the barracks might've been like. And the other detail of that, particular part of the story that sticks out to me is that apparently Harold Stewart um, was a little bit in love with James Macaulay and anyone who knows me well knows that that's exactly the kind of thing that would pique my interest like oh someone in this story has a little crush on someone else in this story and uh, is there anything more like enticing than oh I can I can be in on this with my friend and I, and I can impress him and that'll bring us even closer together. Um, so, yeah, I imagine it being a very fun afternoon and maybe um, Stuart and Macaulay kind of losing themselves in this project and kind of losing sight of just how horrible they're about to be. But they don't think better of it. They send the poems to Max Harris under the pseudonym of Ern's sister Ethel Malley, who says, Dear Sir... When I was going through my brother's things after his death, I found some poetry he had written. I am no judge of it myself, but a friend who I showed it to thinks it is very good and told me it should be published. On his advice, I am sending you some of the poems for an opinion. It would be a kindness if you would let me know whether you think there is anything in them. I am not a literary person myself, and I do not feel that I understand what he wrote, but I feel that I ought to do something about them. I feel like in this letter as well, um... Stuart and Macaulay are kind of making fun of that that Emperor's New Clothes aspect of uh, the new poetry that's being written. You know, people, your sort of everyday readers looking at this stuff going, well, I don't know if it's any good, but people are publishing it. So I don't know, maybe I'm not smart enough to get it. 
sounds kind of familiar um i'm sure to to a lot of people reading and writing poetry today that's not something that's out of our realm of experience either so max harris falls for it he publishes the poetry in a i think a special edition of um his journal and he is exposed but at this point things aren't too bad for max harris um it's definitely uh at this point, the conversation is around how, uh, what is the literary merit of these poems? Um, because it's not just Harris that's fallen for it, it's, it's his wider circle as well. Harris was part of a, a circle of artists and writers um, known today as the Heidi Circle, um, kind of centered around uh, John and Sunday Reed, who had an artist colony out in Heidelberg, which I'm you can't see me, but I'm pointing at my window because it's just up the road from where I live. Um, and uh, yeah, so a lot of people um, were sort of taken in, I suppose. And so the debate at this point in the story becomes, okay, so we fell for this. So what is the, the merit of these poems? And that's the part of the debate that continues to this day. So on Wednesday, on um Ern Malley's quote-unquote actual birthday, um, I did actually, I uh, went along to a lecture at the English and Theatre Studies Department at Melbourne Uni, um, and then to a reading afterwards of, of his poetry, and the conversation that was kind of going around, um, or one of the threads, was this continued kind of question, like, these poems are not that bad, like, they're not great, but they're not that bad, and I think that under tone to that is probably you know this kind of um solidarity with max harris even today like i would have fallen for it too you know kind of thing um and there's another aspect to that which comes out in the introduction to um the urn mally collected that i managed to discover just a few days ago actually um written by albert tucker albert tucker was an artist also part of the heidi circle and um, he brings up this question of were Macaulay and Stewart accessing their unconscious in a way? Were they so they're, they're trying to write poetry that's convincing enough that Harris will fall for it? But obviously, in doing that, they have to use a lot of the poetic skill that they have at their disposal. So they can't write absolute doggerel, even though when it becomes clear and obvious to everyone that these are hoax poems. They try to distance themselves from the poems completely and say, look, you know, we weren't trying to do anything literary here. Absolutely the opposite. They make no sense at all. Um, but Tucker brings up the point in person, as it turns out, to Macaulay and Stewart, that maybe they were actually accessing um, something in their unconscious in this kind of like uh, collage like process that they were using so i'll read you this little bit from tucker's introduction to the collected and mally he says now let us approach the hoax from these points of view it is clear that macaulay and stewart were poets of real sensibility but totally committed to traditional verse forms indeed to such an extent that the formal structure of the poem became its real meaning and defined it as poetry Everything else was raw material which did not achieve the status of poetry until it was fitted into traditional verse forms. 
The intensity of this conviction was clearly demonstrated during my, my one brief encounter with them. Not long after the hoax was revealed, John Reed set up a lunch meeting for me with them. We met at the Latin restaurant in Burke Street, and as we, were to, as we began our minestrone, I, ever the confrontationist, started in on the role of the subconscious, saying that it could generate poetic values without being forced through the procrustrean procedure of being fitted into pre-existing verse forms, and that it was possible that they had hoaxed themselves. That was as far as I got. Macaulay exploded into a tantrum, leapt to his feet, spluttering breadcrumbs and rushed out of the restaurant, followed by a startled and bewildered steward. That was my first and last I saw of them. Emotions running high already at this point in the story. Um, yeah, people taking things very seriously here. So let's pause for a minute before we get into the um, uh, things get a lot worse for Max Harris. Um, but let's pause for a second and just, just have a little read of one of these poems. Uh, I'll read you one, uh, the one that I uh, read out at the reading on Wednesday. It's called Sweet William. I have avoided your wide English eyes, but now I am whirled in their vortex. My blood becomes a damaged man, most like your Albion. And I must go with stone feet down the staircase of flesh to where in a shuddering embrace, my toppling opposites commit the obscene the unforgivable rape. One moment of daylight let me have, like a white arm threwest out of the dark and self-denying wave. And in the one moment I shall irremediably attest how, though with sobs and torn cries bleeding, my white swan of quietness lies, sanctified on my black swan's breast. So yeah, it's not, it's not fantastic. Um, it's pretty heavy handed, but I don't know. I mean, this is why I'm so glad that, um, I'm not a, the editor of a poetry journal some days because gosh, uh, I, I don't know, like I probably would have fallen for it as well. And that's the point. They're trying to make you fall for it. And yeah, the, the interesting question continues to be if you're, trying to write a bad poem but trying to make it good enough that it could, could it would convince someone then are you really writing a bad poem so now comes the bit in the story where things get bad for max um so the press got wind of the scandal and uh that was sort of bad enough that the whole thing was being discussed in, in the papers. But then what happened was um, the police got involved and not because of the hoax. You would think that they'd be going after Macaulay and Stewart maybe, but no, it's because these poems were deemed to be offensive. They were um, indecent and um, what happened was that uh, Max Harris was, was put in the stand for, I think, two and a half days to defend the poetry um, and, and others of his, his circle as well were all put on stand to kind of defend this stuff that they had published. 
even though it wasn't even real, like it wasn't written by a real person. Ah, it gets so complicated. So um, Max Harris has written an introduction to the Erd Mallee Collected here too. And uh, I'll just read you this little section where he describes um, the back and forth in the trial between himself and uh, Detective Vogelsang, who is uh, one of the, the police involved. He says, uh, he's talking about a poem here called Night Peace, which is another of the, um, of the 17 that was published. The greatest mystery of the trial was the prosecution of Night Peace, as neither the defense nor anyone present had the faintest idea how this poem could be interpreted in an indecent way. The indecency lay in the fact that the events took place in a park at night. Detective Vogel sang, They were going there for some disapproved motive. Because of the disapproval and the nature of the time they went there and the disapproval of the iron birds make me say it is immoral. I have found that people who go into parks at night go there for immoral purposes. My experience as a police officer might, under certain circumstances, tinge my appreciation of the poetry. The poem Egyptian Register was prosecuted because it contains the word genitals. I think it is immoral, the use of the word genitals, complained De Detective Vogelsang. Another extraordinary evidence of indecency was the word incestuous. Detective Vogelsang said, I don't know what incestuous means, but I think there is a suggestion of indecency about it. So... A pretty embarrassing and uh, shambolic trial by all accounts. If you want to read the entire transcript, you can. Apparently it's up on uh, the Jacket 2 website. So you can really see the true ridiculousness of this episode in Australian literary history. So, uh, yeah, apparently. So at the end of the trial, um, Max Harris is fined five pounds with the alternative of 12 weeks in jail. Night Peace is a short poem, so I'll read that to you as well, just so you can get a bit more of a sense of, of the indecency we're dealing with here. The swung torch scatters seeds in the umbelliferous dark, and a frog makes guttural comment on the naked and trespassing nymph of the lake. The symbols were evident. Though on park gates the iron birds looked disapproval with rusty, invidious beaks. Among the water lilies, a splash, white foam in the dark, and you lay sobbing then upon my trembling, intuitive arm. That last line's pretty terrible, isn't it? Trembling, intuitive arm. Yikes. It's <laughs> terrible. So, okay, so what I thought might be interesting at this point too is just to pause and hear a poem of Max Harris's from around about the same time. Um, this poem that I want to read to you is called Mithridatum of Despair. Apologies if I'm mispronouncing that word. Apparently Mithridatum is a remedy for poisoning. Um, and this is the poem that gave the name Angry Penguins to the, the circle around Max Harris. Um, apparently the title was suggested when um, an Adelaide classicist, Charles Dury, broke into Harris's reading of his poem Mithridatum of Despair on a line describing drunks in evening suits as the angry penguins of the night 
And apparently this child's jury breaks out. That's exactly what you young iconoclasts are, he said. Angry penguins. So uh, this is what Max Harris was, was sounding like around about the same time. Mithridatum of despair. We know no Mithridatum of despair as drunks, the angry penguins of the night, straddling the cobbles of the square, tying a shoelace by fogged lamplight. We know no astringent pain, no flecking of thought's dull eternal sea, in garret image of Spain and love, now love's parody. See chaos spark, struck from flint, and the plunging distemper, flare in the dawn's dull seep of milk cart horse, morning horse, chaos horse, walking at three to the doors of sleep with the creamy poison, convulsions endure from nine to five, all life immure and still alive. We know no Mithridatum, nor the remembered dregs of fear. The glass stands dry and silted. No end is near. So I guess what I can say about that, I mean, that's not my brand of poetry, um, but it does strike me that you could almost swap it out for one of the Ern Malley poems. I mean, whether Macaulay and Stewart are accessing their unconscious or whether they're doing it all extremely uh, consciously and in a calculated way, they've written poems that sound like Max Harris of the time to send to him. So, yeah, again, I probably would have fallen for it as well. <laughs> um, so I guess a final thought to, to leave you with, whether you're somebody who lives in and writes poetry in Australia or you are a, a poetry reader or whether you're listening from somewhere overseas. Um, the fact that on Wednesday, on the 100th birthday, quote unquote, of Ern Malley, um, a whole bunch of poets got together in Melbourne and, and did a reading and it was kind of a celebration of a life that never existed. I mean, I think, I think we love Ern Malley and we continue to be fascinated by the Ern Malley hoax because it kind of speaks to, well, for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons being that it speaks to the ongoing kind of tension that is still there in Australian poetry, I think, which is between your modern day Macaulay's and Stuart's who would like poetry to be um, a certain way, maybe a bit more kind of rule following, maybe a bit more functional, and uh, those who would maybe want to be a bit more experimental and have a bit more fun. And and the fact that one side, uh, if you can call it a side, I mean, it's a spectrum, but um, certain people along the spectrum will look at other people at, uh, in other positions and say, look, I just don't get what you're doing. I don't understand it. It doesn't speak to me. And um, I think maybe the fact that we continue to be as Australian writers insecure about our size and our position as a, as a nation um, and our history as a nation means that we feel like we have to maybe present a united front. And so you kind of, when you feel insecure like that, you're kind of looking at the other people on your side, quote unquote, or in your group and you're sort of like, don't, don't be like that. Why have you got to be so weird? We're trying to, you know, we're trying to impress the big guys here. Um, 
yeah, maybe that's part of it. I don't know. That's just my theory for today. But I think Earn Mally is a story that we continue to live with. This is something that um, came up when I chatted to Alan Wern a little while ago. And he was saying too, talking about the New Zealand um, poetry scene, that it's interesting to kind of see that, that they don't live with the legacy of a hoax like this and we're constantly kind of thinking about it and dealing with it. So I just looked at my timer. I've been chatting for over 25 minutes. I'm going to stop there. That's, um, yeah, I look, I'm not an Earn Valley expert at all. This is only my version of a story. It's heavily informed by what I learned at the lecture on Wednesday. So Huge thanks to Justin Clemens and Michael Farrell and everyone who was there. And uh, yeah, I took copious notes. I hope I haven't garbled any major details here, guys. I, I'm sorry if I have. Um, I don't want to add any more murkiness to this story, that's for sure. Um, but yeah, happy birthday, Earn. Happy belated birthday. And uh, thanks for tuning in. 